Good morning. On the inside of the, the bulletin, uh, most of you know this already, you will find sermon notes. There's a title there, The Gospel of God. Uh, today's text, Romans chapter 1, the first seven verses. And below that, a, a wonderful quotation from F.F. F. Bruce. He was an Englishman, a New Testament scholar. He's with the Lord now. And in his commentary on Paul's epistle to the Romans, he penned these words, There is no saying what may happen when people begin to study the letter to the Romans. That is a delightful thought. Uh, I first studied this letter in 1998 in Portugal. Seems like a long time ago. Uh, The sovereignty of God overwhelmed me at that time, really impacted me, the sovereignty of God. I studied the letter for a second time in Canada in 2005. The sufficiency of Christ, that is what really grabbed and held my attention throughout the book. And so I, uh, with great anticipation, am now studying it for a third time. And wondering what it is the Lord will impress upon my own heart, my own mind. As I go through it verse by verse, I approach it, uh, yes, expectantly, that God will accomplish great things in my own life, and by extension, great things in your lives. Today, we're going to begin with what can only be called Paul's greeting. Uh, The introduction to this epistle basically takes up the first 17 verses of chapter 1. And within that introduction, there is a greeting, and it is found in the first seven verses. And so this is going to be our text, our portion for today. And so please follow along as I read it for us. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Briefly, uh, Paul does three important things in this greeting. Firstly, obviously, he identifies himself as the author. Very first word, Paul. Secondly, he identifies his audience. Verse 7, to all those in Rome, he qualifies it. He does not mean the city of Rome in general and every citizen of the city of Rome, but the church particularly, which gathers in the city of Rome. That church is his audience. And the third thing he tells us in this greeting is his subject. Right there at the end of verse 1, the gospel of God. That's it. We know the author, we know the audience, and we know his subject, his theme, the gospel of God. 
In the greeting, he mentions, highlights, seven truths concerning this gospel. These are important because as he launches this epistle and his proclamation of the gospel of God, these seven truths will emerge at different junctures throughout the epistle. And so he introduces them all here. And essentially what he does from this point all the way through to the end of chapter 16 is he elaborates on each. He explains them. Here's my theme. This is my subject matter. And then he expounds each of these significant themes in turn throughout the epistle. And so today, as we introduce ourselves to this book, Paul's epistle to the Romans, we are primarily concerned with these seven truths. But I'm going to do something slightly different, just to keep you off kilter. I want to turn each of these truths into a prayer request. And so this, this will serve, these seven truths, turn them into seven prayer requests, and these prayer requests will serve as our introduction as we embark on this study. Now, why am I doing this? Why convert these seven truths into seven prayer requests? Well, to answer that, I want to share with you a statement. It's going to strike you as strange when you first hear it, but bear with me. Here it is. An hour of vigorous flossing and brushing the night before visiting the dentist will not compensate for 12 months of neglect. Now, some of you are shocked. You didn't know that. I have someone in my household who shall remain nameless who still is yet to be convinced of that. An hour of vigorous flossing and brushing the night before visiting the dentist will not compensate for six, seven, eight, twelve months of neglect. Where am I going with this? The same is true of the gospel. Far too often, we pull the gospel out when? In cases of emergency. Oh no, my friends. My prayer, my desire, is that we understand this gospel, 16 chapters, this epistle, this gospel, that we understand it, that we experience it, And that this gospel will become, if it is not already, a living truth. A living truth. Meaning, it will be a truth by which we orient our lives each and every day. And so I'm going to take these seven truths concerning the gospel of God in these verses and convert them into prayer requests so that we apply the gospel consistently not sporadically. We apply it intentionally, not haphazardly. We apply it diligently, not carelessly. All right, you got it? You see where we're going? Seven truths, seven prayer requests. Truth number one, here it is. The gospel originates with God. Right there in verse one, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel originates with God. Paul says three things about himself in this verse. Very interesting. First of all, he identifies himself as a slave. I'm reading from the ESV. It actually says a servant of Christ Jesus. It's not the word servant in the Greek. It's doulos. It is slave. He is a slave of Jesus Christ. That is the point he is making. He uses the word intentionally. Why? Because the word conveys what? At its very 
basic significance. It conveys ownership. And so he is making it clear that he belongs to someone else. He probably has in mind that experience as recorded in Acts chapter 9 as he is on his way to Damascus. And he is blinded by that resplendent light. And he hears the voice of the resurrected Christ. And at that moment, Christ owns the Apostle Paul. He takes him as his own. And from that moment, he's never the same man. At that moment, he no longer belongs to himself. He is now enslaved to Christ. That's the first thing he says about himself, a servant of Christ Jesus or a slave of Christ Jesus. Second thing is this. He tells us that he is a slave in terms of his position. Right there in verse 1, called to be an apostle. It was an effectual call. I had no choice in the matter. The Lord Jesus called me. He appointed me. He designated me as one of his official representatives, one of that group, a select group who would serve a very important function as the foundation of the church and as the foundation of the New Testament canon. And so he's a slave to Christ in terms of his position. And he tells us thirdly that he's a slave in terms of his message. What does he say right at the end there, verse 1? Set apart. So here I was, but Christ set me apart for a purpose. For what? The gospel of God. And so understand, the Apostle Paul, very important man. Paul, I dare say, a brilliant man. Wisdom defies the ages. Insight unequaled throughout human history. The Apostle Paul, the instrument, he serves, if you like, as the climax of God's self-revelation to man. He occupies a tremendous position, yet he is a mere slave. This is not his gospel. It is the gospel of the living God. That's the first truth. The gospel originates with God. Here's my prayer. I pray as we go through this book, We will be amazed by Paul's exaltation of God as the supreme cause and as the last end of all things. I pray we will view the gospel as the revelation of God, whereby we discover him. I pray we will view the knowledge of God as an end in itself, after all. What could be more practical, more beneficial, and more wonderful than knowing God. And I pray that we will define all things according to God's eternal glory, not our earthly happiness. That is truth number one. Truth number two is as follows. The gospel fulfills a promise. Verse two, which, which refers back to what? Last statement in verse one, the gospel of God, which, so this gospel, he, that is God, promised, promised it beforehand. Before what? The coming of Christ. Where did he promise it? Through his prophets. And where do we have this revelation? Right there, still in verse 2. In the Holy Scriptures. And so the gospel fulfills a promise. That is a brilliant way to think of the Old Testament. When you open the Old Testament, doesn't matter which book of the Old Testament, think of it in these terms. It is a promise. That's all it is. The Old Testament is a promise. We find that promise way back in Genesis 3. We hear after the fall, God speaking to the serpent. We hear God addressing Satan and telling Satan, yes, you will bruise his heel, but he will 
crush your head. It is a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a promise concerning a coming Savior. It is a promise concerning a man who will come, who will deal definitively with Satan and will deal definitively with man's predicament arising from his sin and rebellion. We find the promise as we fast forward through the Old Testament. We find it in Noah. What's Noah doing? There he is, he with his family in the ark. And in that ark, he survives. God protects him. He preserves him from the waters of his judgment. That's a picture of Christ. That is a promise concerning Christ. Peter tells us that in his epistles. That we're saved how? By being baptized into Christ. We are saved by becoming one with Christ. Christ is like an ark. And we become one with him. And because we're one with him, he has already passed through what? The waters of God's judgment upon Calvary's cross. And so we're saved how? By identifying with Christ. As those in the ark were saved by identifying with Noah and passed through the waters of God's judgment safely and securely. It's a promise. It's a picture. Beautiful picture. So too we are saved by virtue of our union with Christ. You fast forward in Genesis 12. God calls Abraham. And he promises Abraham, in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. That's not the nation of Israel, folks. That's a man, the Lord Jesus Christ. In Christ, your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. God has always had a plan for the nations. God has always had a plan to call his people appointed before the foundation of the world unto himself, unto salvation, through this seed, this son, this individual, the Lord Jesus Christ. You fast forward, you come to Moses. And at the Exodus, we have Moses departing the land of Egypt and leading that multitude, the nation of Israel. And as they head out from the land of Egypt, they leave it basically desolated, don't they? Ten plagues culminating the death of the firstborn. All of that points to what? Moses is a picture of whom? The Lord Jesus Christ. We are in far greater bondage than they were ever in. Their bondage was merely physical in the land of Egypt. Our bondage is spiritual and it is eternal. We need a Savior. We need someone to lead us out of bondage. How did they depart the land of, land of Egypt? It was through the sacrifice of a Passover lamb. What does Paul say? Oh, praise God, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. And then God institutes through Moses that elaborate system of worship, festivals, feasts, sacrifices, offerings, washings, all of it a shadow. A shadow merely pointing to, preparing for the substance, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is all a promise. We move through, we come to the prophets. Rather, we come to the judges first, and we come to the kings. All of these judges and kings pointing to the Lord Jesus as they rule over the nation of Israel. We see repeatedly the Israelites, what, succumbing to idolatry. And as they succumb to idolatry, God sends an oppressor to oppress them and subjugate them and enslave them. And then out of mercy and faithfulness to his covenant, he sends a judge or he sends a king to release them and to deliver them, all of them pointing to what? An individual. The need for a great Savior. The need for someone to deliver us from our sin, deliver us from our idolatry, finally and definitively. And then we come to the prophets. The prophets speak of a conquering king. The prophets foretell of a suffering servant. The prophets announce the coming of one who will be numbered among the transgressors. It is all a promise building on that original promise as given all the way back in Genesis 3.15. The entire Old Testament, Genesis to Malachi, is simply 
a promise. And then Paul declares in his epistle to the Galatians, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. The gospel fulfills a promise. Look again at what Paul says in the second verse, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Now, here's my prayer. I pray. I pray we will be devastated. As we study this book, I pray we will be devastated by Paul's exposure of our sin and guilt. You better buckle in, folks. We are in for a rough ride, especially through the first three chapters. I pray we will be devastated. Devastated as the Apostle Paul dares to enter into the inner recesses and caverns of our souls and lay us bare and show us exactly what we are. I pray we will be devastated. Devastated by Paul's exposure of our sin and guilt. I pray we will see that the most dangerous threat to us is not the sin in this world, but the sin in our hearts. I pray we will feel our inability to alter our condition before God. I pray we will realize that true joy escapes us until we come to terms with our utter sinfulness. We only reach the heights of blessedness through the valleys of despair. I pray we will see that our hope rests on God's faithfulness to his promise, even in the midst of willful rebellion. Oh, I need to repeat that one. I pray we will see that our hope rests on God's faithfulness to his promise, even in the midst of willful rebellion. Truth number three, the gospel centers on Christ. Verse three, concerning. Now, what does that word refer to? All the way back, the last statement in verse one, the gospel of God concerning, verse three, his son. And so here we have the great theme of the gospel, God's son. And now Paul tells us two things. He imparts two truths concerning the son. Truth number one, still in verse three, who was descended from David according to the flesh. That's his physical origin. He's a man. He's flesh, body, soul, like you and me. He is a direct descendant of David, that famous king over the nation of Israel. Truth number two, verse four, he was declared to be the son of God in power. That's his exalted position. According to the spirit of holiness, how was he declared to be the son of God in power? By his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so the gospel concerns Christ. And in particular, two non-negotiable truths, pillars, hills worth dying on. Two non-negotiable truths concerning Christ. The first is this. He's a man. His humanity, according to the flesh, a descendant of David. He is a man, body and soul like you and me. The second truth, his divinity, or rather his deity. He was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness. When? By his resurrection from 
the dead. At that moment, the Father confirmed the identity of Christ. He is indeed my beloved Son, the eternal Son of God. And so Paul gravitates to these two truths. Here we have them, essential to the gospel. The gospel centers on Christ. Why are these two truths so essential? Hear this, listen carefully. If Christ had merely been God, he could not have died for us. Right? He would still have been a worthy object of worship, obviously. But he could not have died for us. He could not have taken our place. We needed a kinsman redeemer. We needed someone like us. We needed a descendant of Adam. We needed someone like us, body and soul, to take our place upon Calvary's cross. His humanity is absolutely essential to our redemption. If he had merely been God, he could not have died as a substitute for us. Now, if he had merely been a man, he could not have died as a substitute for us. Why? He could not have borne our sin without being corrupted by it. And he could not have borne the wrath of God without being consumed by it. Do you understand how pivotal these two truths are? He is the God-man. His humanity, his divinity, these are essential to the gospel. Here's my prayer. I pray we will be overwhelmed by Paul's display of God's grace in Christ. I pray we will see that God's love goes to unfathomable lengths to save us. Christ paid for all our sin at one moment upon the cross. Now, what does God think of his children? Now, what does God think of his people? How do we feel about our children? We do not cherish them because they are adorable. We cherish them because they are ours. God cherishes us because he makes us his by redeeming us. I pray we will not be mere spectators of God's grace, staring at it, singing about it, and merely talking about it. But we will delight in it. God's grace toward his people. The gospel centers on Christ. Truth number four. The gospel requires the obedience of faith. Comes out in the fifth verse. Through whom? The word whom refers back to Jesus Christ our Lord. Right at the end of verse four. Through whom? That is through him, through Christ. We, Paul is speaking now on behalf of the apostles. We have received grace. It's grace for a specific purpose in his context. And apostleship. To do what? To bring about the obedience of faith. Interesting phrase, that. We are justified by grace alone through faith alone. Amen. Paul's going to affirm that in chapter 3. He is going to defend it with every fiber of his being, every ounce of his intellectual capacity in chapter 4. Oh, he's going to defend it. A hill worth dying on. We are justified by grace alone, through faith alone. But Paul, equally important, is going to defend this. The faith by which we are justified is never alone. And so we are justified, yes, through faith alone. But it is a faith that is never alone. 
In other words, it is a faith that leads to what? Surrender. And so Paul speaks here very carefully, chooses his words very carefully, of the obedience of faith. I was teaching at a children's camp years ago, probably a decade ago. And in one of my sessions, uh, interacting with the kids, I asked them, how, how does an individual become a Christian? And uh, what does it mean really to believe on the Lord Jesus? And this little boy, I've never forgotten his name, Lucas, and I've never forgotten his reply. To believe on the Lord Jesus means to make him the most important thing in your life. That was profound from an eight-year-old. To believe in the Lord Jesus means to make him the most important thing in your life. That is the obedience of faith. Here's my prayer. I pray we will be convinced by Paul's argument that faith is the means by which we receive God's gift of salvation. Amen to that. I pray we will understand that we do not contribute anything to the gospel. I pray we will understand that we do not make a deal with God. There is no deal. We don't give him faith and obedience so that he will give us salvation and happiness. Let me repeat, there is no deal. Even our faith is his gift to us. Oh, I pray we see that. I pray we'll understand that the gospel isn't about what we can or cannot do. It is about what God has done for us in Christ. I pray we will see that God changes our hearts by making Christ more and more beautiful to us. As we put on Christ, we put off sin. I pray we will understand the relationship between faith and obedience. The relationship between resting and obeying. I seek to obey because I am resting in Christ. That is the fourth truth. The gospel requires the obedience of faith. The fifth truth. The gospel glorifies God among the nations. I'm going to start reading again from the start of the fifth verse. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name. And so it's for his glory And where is the obedience of faith brought about? Among, very last statement in verse 5, among all the nations. That has always been God's plan. God has only ever had one plan. We have creation, Genesis 1. We have the fall, Genesis 3. We have that display of man's utter sinfulness in Genesis 6. And that declaration of what each of us deserves in that flood, Noah's flood, Genesis 8, Genesis 9. And then we have that repetition of willful rebellion in Genesis 11, where humanity opposes the one true living God at a place called Babel. They build a tower. And what does God do? In judgment, he confuses their languages. And he spreads people, he spreads the nations with their confused languages over the face of the earth. In the very next chapter, what does he do? He calls a man by sovereign grace, a man who himself was an idolater, Abraham. And he promises Abraham what? And remember the promise in the context of Babel, Genesis 11. In your seed, all the nations will be blessed. Oh, they've rebelled against me. 
I've confused their languages, and I have spread them over the face of the earth. But here is my plan, and this has always been my plan. A man is coming. I spoke of him back in Genesis 3.15, the one who will crush the head of the serpent. He's coming. And now I am identifying him with your seed. He will come. And in that man, in that individual, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. For a temporary period of time, turns Abraham, Isaac, Jacob into a great nation. This is a parenthesis in God's plan. The nation of Israel serves a very specific purpose. It is what? To preserve the oracles of God. It is to preserve the truth of God. It is to preserve God's promise concerning the coming Messiah. That's why John the Baptist, when he goes preaching, and he sees the Lord Jesus, what's the first thing he declares? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of Israel. No, 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 no. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. God has always had the nations in view. And the Lord Jesus, having completed his sojourn here on earth, having satisfied the righteousness of God, having borne the penalty for our sin upon Calvary's cross, having risen from the dead, having ascended and assumed that position of authority at the right hand of the Father, he sends forth the Holy Spirit as he promised on the day of Pentecost. And what are those people gathered at Jerusalem here on the day of Pentecost? Acts 2, you read it. What do they hear? They hear tongues. Spanish. They hear languages. Each, they, they, they hear the apostles, most of them semi-illiterate. They hear them, and they hear them in their own tongue. What is this signifying? What is this declaring? That what was done at Babel way back in Genesis 11 is now undone. That God has fulfilled his promise. The seed of Abraham has come. He has given himself for his people, fulfilling righteousness on their behalf, paying the penalty for their sin on their behalf. He has risen victoriously. He has ascended on high. He has now sent forth the Spirit of God, and what was done at Babel is now undone. The nations had been scattered, and now they are gathered in. That has always been God's plan. That has always been his attention. The gospel glorifies God. Among the nations. Here's my prayer. I pray we will be gripped by Paul's fervor for the spread of God's glory among the nations. Hear the words of Malachi 1.11. From the rising of the sun even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense is going to be offered to my name and a grain offering that is pure. For my name will be great among the nations, declares the Lord of hosts. That is the fifth truth concerning this gospel. The sixth is as follows. The gospel manifests God's sovereign grace. Sovereign grace or sin abounding. I could burst out in song. Tricia wants me to, but I won't. But I could. Sovereign grace or sin abounding. And here we see it in verse 6 and verse 7. Look carefully at what Paul pens here. Including. Including. What does that go back to? What he has just stated at the end of verse 5. Among all the nations, including you. And now he is speaking specifically to that church gathered, that little body of believers gathered in that cesspool known as the city of Rome, including you. And he says three things about them. Number one, who are called. 
to belong to Jesus Christ. Two calls in Scripture, folks. There is God's general call. It is an invitation. Whosoever will may come. It is heard with the human ear. There is, secondly, in Scripture, what theologians call the effectual or the special call. Not only heard with the ear, but heard with the soul. God's general call is an invitation. God's effectual call is a powerful claim. And that's what we have here. Including you who are called sovereignly to belong to Jesus Christ. Second thing he tells us about these people, into verse 7. To all those, it's the church in Rome. Here it is, number two. Who are loved by God. To all those in Rome, it's the church, who are loved by God. Doesn't God love everybody? Yes, sort of. The Bible speaks of God's love in two ways. There is his general love for creation. His general love for his creatures. He sends the sun and the rain upon the righteous and the wicked. And so we have providence. We have creation. We see God's creational care. And this is a wonderful declaration of his general love for creation, his creatures, for everyone. But there is, secondly, in Scripture, his special love. This is the love he has for his son. Those who are outside his son, therefore, obviously, are not the objects of this love. To be the object of this love, you must be one with God's beloved, Jesus Christ. And we become one with the Lord Jesus Christ. We are one with God's beloved. And the love God has for his people in Christ is the exact love the Father has. Has for the Son. That is the love of which he speaks here to all those in Rome who are loved by God. Third description, right at the end of verse 7. And called, not a mere invitation. Please, please, please. I think most of us are safe in this regard, but perhaps one or two aren't. Please, 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 ne- never think of the Lord Jesus in heaven having accomplished his time here on earth, his sojourn having given himself at Calvary's cross, having risen from the dead and ascended on high, never picture him sort of sitting up there hoping that someone will believe in him. Never picture him like that, please. How disrespectful. Never picture him as though, well, he's done everything he can. Now he's just kind of helplessly sitting around, waiting for people to believe in him. No, he is a conquering king who goes forth mightily conquering in the hearts of all his people effectually. This is not a mere invitation, folks. This is a powerful claim by which he calls his people to himself. He calls them to belong to himself. That was back in verse 6. And he calls them to be saints, holy, those who are set apart. Those who are distinguished, differentiated from the world, the day in which we live, and they are called to him to belong to him. Oh, the sovereign grace of God. Here's my prayer. I pray we will be comforted by Paul's assurance that God is the author of our salvation from start to finish. I pray 
We will enjoy the truth that God holds on to his people with a mighty arm, even when we feel little joy and we sense little assurance. I need to repeat that one. I need to repeat that one for the sake of a few of you. And you know who you are, and I know who you are. Here it is again. I pray that we will enjoy the truth that God holds on to his people with a mighty outstretched arm, even when we feel little joy and we sense little assurance. I pray we will enjoy the truth that God carries his people even when we limp through life, barely able to see beyond our struggles. I pray we will be convinced that God governs every circumstance in our lives for our ultimate good. That is the sixth truth. The gospel manifests God's sovereign grace. Here's the last, number seven. The gospel imparts grace and peace. Second half of verse seven. It's a prayer. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. And the Lord Jesus Christ. I mentioned these graces last Sunday. Let me repeat them quickly. This is strengthening grace so that we can endure affliction. This is sustaining grace so that we do remain faithful. This is equipping grace so that we can serve God. This is illuminating grace so that we can understand the Bible, Scripture. This is encouraging grace to vanquish fear. This is enabling grace to obey God. This is comforting grace to overcome sorrow. This is fortifying grace to resist temptation. And when God imparts these graces to us through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the result is what? Peace. As we receive grace, the experience is overwhelming peace. Here's my prayer request. I pray we will be strengthened by Paul's celebration of what it means to be one with Christ. I pray we will see that in Christ, oh, please hear these words. I pray we will see that in Christ, we possess all the perfection we need to please God. Do you believe that? In Christ, we possess all the perfection we need to please God. We possess all the righteousness we need to stand before God. We possess all the obedience we need to be accepted by God. I pray we will see that Christ succeeded in every way we fail. Oh, praise God for that. Christ succeeded in every way we fail. He trusted. He obeyed. He triumphed. He endured. He persevered in our place. And so every grace we enjoy first belonged to Christ. He imparts this grace to us by virtue of our union with him. I pray we will know the kind of peace that flows from knowing Christ. There are the seven truths of the gospel. And Paul is going to come back to them repeatedly throughout this epistle. He's going to touch on each of them at different junctures, expanding and explaining. And our prayer 
as we trace the Apostle Paul's thought flow through this epistle, our prayer is that, yes, we will grow in our understanding of the gospel, equally important, that we will grow in our experience of the gospel, that it will indeed become a living truth. That's going to be our title. That is our theme, the gospel. Here is truth to make us wise. Here is light to guide our way. Here is hope to calm our fears. Here is joy to ease our sorrows. Here is water to quench our thirst. And here is food to satisfy our hunger. Our Father, we do look to you now. And we pray your blessing upon your word. We pray your blessing right now that you would give us hearts to receive all that we have just considered. And we pray as we move forward that you would give us minds to understand and hearts to receive all that you will show us, all that you will teach us from this portion of your word. We acknowledge our complete dependence upon you. And we pray this, we ask for this, for your glory, for the furtherance of your kingdom among us. And in the matchless name of our Lord Savior, Jesus Christ, amen.